Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Amber Alley Frost, socialist, author, and co-host of Chapo Trap House, or as she likes to say, the gendered Chapo, to talk about her new book, Dirtbag. We also get into the value of socialist memoirs, when to tell records clearly to fuck off, and the shortfalls of hashtag activism. So welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We are stoked to be here with Amber Ali Frost. How's it going, Amber? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're super stoked. Um, Amber is an essayist, um, the co-host of Chapo Trap House, and also the author of Dirtbag, which is her newest book. Um, and it's really good. And we both yep. just read it recently. We just finished reading it. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah, we are we both really loved it. Um, why don't you tell oh, our listeners... Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why don't you tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself and who you are, what you do? Uh, yeah. So I generally, when I simplify it, I say I'm a writer because that's what I was before. I was a, a, a erstwhile podcaster. Um, I'm from Indiana, but I moved to New York cause nothing going on in Indiana. I figure if there weren't jobs after 2008 anywhere, I might as well pick, uh, a place where I'm so sorry. My cat is in a plant right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. At one point I realized, I'm like, why is this plant dying? It's because he's decided it's a litter box. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Starting over. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I generally say that I'm a writer, um, mainly because it's what I was before I was a podcast. Shit, fire. What in God's name? Um, okay. So I generally say that I'm a writer um, because it's sort of what I was before I was a podcaster and I'm sort of an erstwhile podcaster. Um, I took time off, time off from co-hosting Chapo Trap House to um, sort of extend our projects into other things, um, hopefully watch this space, etc. And to work on my first book, Dirtbag. Um, but yeah, I came from Indiana to New York Um mainly because there were no jobs after 2008 anywhere. And I figured if there weren't going to be any jobs, I might as well move to a place where, you know, stuff was going. I might as well be poor in a cool place. Mm. Um, But weirdly, uh, I had this huge amount of success with Chapo that, um, you know, I, I, from reading and one hand washes the other. Um, I think, I think a lot of, us were started out doing one thing and you know you do a bunch of stuff and you don't know you don't know what's going to hit it's completely random um i hope no one ever finds all the things we failed at before we Mm. before we uh lucked out with chapo but you know who knows um yeah and then i i moved to la during the pandemic i i figured 
you know, I, I was already thinking about moving. Um, and then, you know, uh, I was locked inside alone for a million years. And I figured, hey, um, the stuff I want to do in L.A. is, um, well, in L.A. And uh, if I'm going to be stuck somewhere, I might as well do it in a place where I can have a car and go outside. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've officially moved as far away from Indiana as I can in both directions. The only way to go now is north and south. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So in your in your book, Dirtbag, in in the introduction, you talk a little bit about socialist memoirs, both situating mm -hmm. Dirtbag in, in a lineage of socialist memoirs, but also just talking about like the fact that you read socialist memoirs and like the socialist mm -hmm. memoirs are important. So can you just talk to us a little bit about why you read socialist memoirs, what those have meant to you and why you think they're important? Yeah, um, I realized I talked entirely about my goofy media career and nothing about activism, which should show you where my head is at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> after finishing uh, the book, I'm like, I get to take a break for a while uh, on the mm -hmm. politics. Um, yeah, so I got involved in politics in Indiana, which is a weird place to get involved in politics. Um, and I think it was because of all the stuff that was going on at the time. Tea Party, if you remember those uh, brilliant people. Um, there was um, massive austerity. We were starting to feel the effects of, um, of you know, frozen wages. Um, it was, uh, you know, everything was being cut. Uh, the state had become right to work, which I, mm -hmm. I, I know you're in Canada, but like, you know what that is, right? <laughs> it's one of those lovely things that sounds like a good thing, uh, where it's like, hey, you have rights. Isn't that great? But essentially, it was union busting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I got interested in how people did politics. I started a, a chapter of DSA in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, well, I want to, what did people do? Um, and I'd like, I like biography and memoir anyway. So it was easy to sort of like tear through those and figure out everything. Now, I will say like, you can't take those all too literally, a lot of like, um, or too um, instructively rather, uh, a lot of stuff just doesn't apply anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But the social dynamics were very useful and certain things about organizing tendencies were very useful. You saw people mm -hmm. sort of try proto-horizontalist things and, um, you know, form sort of sects and uh, sort of uh, fetishize the third world. And you're like, all oh, right, I'm going to try not to do that. But also they're just very entertaining and warming. And when you fail, you feel, I don't know, you feel, I, I guess you could feel hopeless because uh, quite a few memoirs sort of um, come to the conclusion that it was... Um, uh, all a waste but I just I never came to that conclusion mm. I just um, I don't know maybe it's just uh, pig-headedness but I was like well I see where you would get that idea and I feel closer to you now because that's heartbreaking you know this person I've never met um, but I don't know I just had this unflappable faith for some possibly delusional reason mm. <laughs> Um, is there any like specific memoirs, socialist memoirs that you recommend for listeners who might want to explore that? Yeah, um, I think Vivian Gornick's um, oral history, um, uh, The Romance of American Communism is really interesting because it deals sort of with disappointment. Um, it deals with sectarianism, paranoia. Mm. Um, but she also has these beautiful moments, which I sort of like 
strove to put in uh in, in my book which is sort of difficult because it's still I'm still you know I was still smarting from from uh, the defeat of Bernie Sanders um and the sort of careening directions of DSA as well um I I actually recommend Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as a um mm. and Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail as well it's a campaign memoir um, but it, that also deals with sort of disappointment um, and the assuredness that you would win. Um, these I realize these all sound sort of uh, depressing. I mean, I, I I tried to be a communist is very good, um, and it's just a, a two part thing that I think it's an essay you can find free online that I think uh, was in a relatively right wing. I can't remember, but you can you can find it wherever. Um, and it kind of, again, examines the social dynamics that fucked up. But at the same time, I really hope people read Gornick because, you know, there were there were lifers, you know, there are mm -hmm. people who were lost the faith. And uh, that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in your book, you're you're very adamant that um, the the left should not, you know, abandon manufacturing workers as like a, as mm -hmm. the one of the the focuses of sort of our efforts. Let's say, um, why does North America still need manufacturing jobs? Um, and maybe more to the point, like <laughs> why uh, has some of the left basically abandoned manufacturing workers as a focus? Well, I mean, I think. Well, I'll start. With, I'll start with the first part. Um, I'm a big believer in um, geography and proximity being a, an incredibly mm -hmm. useful uh, tool for organizing. Um, I always use the example of, I think it was teachers, like in um, a union battle, they said one of the things they wanted was a room, a break room, where the principal couldn't come in, uh, <laughs> where they could talk, <laughs> you know, like no bosses allowed. Um, I, you know, that's obviously not something that a lot of people uh, get, especially nowadays. But I think being next to someone is very important, literally working in the same space. And I see that with um, logistics, even though a lot of times people spend time pretty isolated in trucks, they still have ways to communicate to each other when they're, you know, running hubs from hub to hub, um, warehouse work, especially to um, I think it's just important for people to be in the same place because it's much harder to organize remotely. You don't have that intimate sort of like, you know, the internet rots your brain. You both know this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's very hard to form a kind of like intimate, trustworthy uh, bond uh, when you don't see someone's face, when you're not working next to them, physically next to them. We are embodied creatures and it's important for us to be around physically other people in meat space or whatever corny thing you want to call it. Um, so there's that. I, I think, okay, to answer the second part, I think there are sort of two reasons um, why the, you know, quote unquote left. I, I like what Adolf Fried says about it, uh, which is like the ostensible, putative, uh, self-considered, perhaps one day will be the left. He just adds all these <laughs> All these is like, you know, so there's no real left right now. Yeah, yeah. But oh, you can't really, you know, the the natal left or whatever, the sick little baby left um, that will one day, you know, get the antibiotics it needs and grow up into something useful. Um, 
I think one, it just has to do with the defeat of the industrial worker or the logistical worker or um, the infrastructural worker. Again, working on a building site is also a place where you're next to people. Um, so, you know, one hand kind of washes the other. And I think a lot of people think that everyone decided, you know, the hard hats, the, the truckers, the um, assembly line workers, um, were everyone that the left decided they were reactionary, mm-hmm. um, and then they declined. I think they declined, and then the left sort of rationalized it by saying, "Well, they were reactionary anyway," because you know when you are promised something by the ostensible left, you know the left wing of capital, and they don't deliver because God knows the Democratic Party has had a huge hand in. Um, union busting and and outsourcing and the sort of things that really have decimated uh, the workers' movement. When you see that, why on earth would you arrive at the conclusion that the left or whatever, the left wing of what we have, the leftmost of the institutions we have are on your side? And mm-hmm. sort of everything about politics has been hollowed out. We've been left with culture war. And that's kind of all people have. I also think that actually most working people are relatively uninvolved with the culture where they have other shit on their mind. I think it's largely a people who've been to college phenomenon and then, mm-hmm. you know, surreal people who are cable news brained um, or Reddit brained or whatever. Um, I don't think your average, like, you know, guy who, uh, I don't know, works retail or nurse or whatever is is reading about incessantly about uh you know bathroom bans or or critical race theory until it actually like affects them directly mm-hmm. yeah so you you focus a lot on labor organizing and why the left needs labor and like maybe this seems super obvious but you know a lot of our audience are people who are leaving this like hyper online um kind of culture war context that you're just referring to. And they're not used to a framing that like the left is supposed to be about labor. So could you just Mm -hmm. spell it out? Like you're talking to the sick little baby and just explain (laughs) (laughs) why labor organizing is important. Yeah. um, I think a lot of it, you know, labor power again has been decimated. So I think a lot of people are, it just don't really have a memory Mm -hmm. um, of, of, worker power having any sort of like um influence um in in politics or the economy um but traditionally uh you know workers get the goods because you know the bosses can't make things without them mm-hmm. um what you can do is withhold labor or control labor or seize the means of production if you want to be all cute about mm-hmm. it um, and that's where you get it. I think because labor has been decimated, the only thing left is a kind of uh, cultural liberalism, and that's what people have or understand as being the left. And you know, there are some liberal advances that uh, you know, social politics that I think have been positive but double-edged sword developments i mean you know you see like you see trans people on tv but like the you know the poverty rate is still incredibly high um Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's nothing, but it's not particularly comfort, you know, it's not a particular comfort uh, for the majority of the people that are somehow now being represented or acknowledged or seen or heard or whatever. Um, you know, I think also the last major thing was sort of uh, the Seattle, like uh, you know, battle in Seattle protests, which is very interesting because I think people sort of have imbibed the liberal line as uh, the socialist line because they literally don't know stuff like that. They don't know that you had immigrants rights group uh, groups uh walk marching alongside um you know like labor groups that were talking about you know controlling the supply of labor uh this idea of like uh i think people get caught up in this idea of like closed borders open borders and it's like well what does that really mean does it mean for capital or does it mean for people mm -hmm. um and what about not just freedom of movement, but the freedom to hold still? It's mm -hmm. not like every, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, Mexican factory worker or, you know, day labor who makes like 70 cents on the dollar to like uh, someone who was born here is uh, just thrilled and just wants to leave their family uh, in wherever they're from and come to a sunny let's say Cleveland. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that's just an example. But I think people have, um, again, no memory. And that's due to, uh, one, there's not much intergenerational politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and two, uh, there's been basically a cover up by liberals. You know? <laughs> You're not supposed to learn about it. You're supposed to, and people are like, oh, the the thing that is good is just open borders. And it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, what does that exactly mean? Because it's so far it has played out as open borders for capital, but not really freedom of movement for people. It's uh, the calculated, um, uh, you know, uh, intervention, economic intervention into Mexico and other countries by the U.S. that has stunted their national development. It's a kind of economic imperialism. We turn everywhere into colonies by outsourcing. Yeah. No, it's interesting how, you know, when when politicians on um so like in Canada, like all major politicians are relatively pro-immigration, right? And they'll kind of like haggle mm -hmm. over exactly how many people should be let in or whatever. But the right. messaging is always like the same. And it's about we need like we need we need workers, right? We need labor for these specific yeah. industries that are like lacking labor, blah, blah, blah. And something that no one like ever, ever talks about is like, why is it that we only allow like capitalists and the capitalist ruling class yeah. to decide uh, where labor should be and how much of it should come in and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's true that maybe the labor movement should have some kind of a say <laughs> in yeah. uh, where labor is and what the supply of it looks like, you know? Um, and it's a, it's a concept that has sort of completely disappeared from the discourse. And I mean, it's also, it's difficult actually, because I think that the last time that the labor movement really talked like that, uh, there was also a lot of sort of like overt white supremacy that was like very rampant in, in like the, the the countries that we live in you know so it's it's like mm -hmm. we've never really had like a a labor movement in a sort of like 
non or like less racist context that is able or, and willing to talk about immigration. It's it's that's an excellent point. Um, we're going to move on a little bit, but you just reminded me of this because you're talking about the battle in Seattle. But um, on that note, you were at Occupy um, and a large part yeah. of your book is about your exploits um, at Occupy Wall Street in New York. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about your experiences there and, and your some of your critiques of Occupy. Right. Well, I mean, I arrived very skeptical and I found the whole experience incredibly frustrating, uh, which you can read about there. It's for a number of reasons. Um, but I will say, um, I hope that I acknowledge that a lot of my frustrations were built in my own mistakes and uh, kind of a smug uh, reticence to be patient with people. Um, I hope people pick up on the honesty in that. Moreover, the reason I think I avoided a lot of the pitfalls uh, is that they're the same ones that people sort of make over and over again. Like I had read, um, you know, Joe Freeman's Trashing mm -hmm. and the Tyranny of Structurelessness. Um, like I said, there's no sort of internal intergenerational transmission of these experiences. So I kind of had a cheat code because I had read these things and I had a kind of elder statesman of DSA who had already made mistakes and experienced defeats. Um, in some ways, that was good because I, you know, I... I I knew ways to not make mistakes. Um, but in some ways it was bad because it made me kind of a smug little Cassandra. Mm -hmm. um, where, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very small consolation to be like, I was right. And the truth is I would rather win than be right, you know, um, if that means that everyone's on the same page. At the same time, I do think uh, Occupy Wall Street was the mistake people had to make to sort of reorient and figure out um, what actually mattered. Um, obviously, that wasn't transmitted through the country as thoroughly as I, I would like. But I think we saw with the first and second Bernie Sanders move, you know, uh, campaigns, people have sort of waken up um, to the fact that um, one, one, uh, things can happen that are unexpected, and they will. Things are not inevitable. I mean, that's the election of Trump. And it's like, well, if Trump can win, maybe Bernie can too. Um, and two, I think people, and by people, I mean sort of self-proclaimed activists, figured out that uh, the, the working class actually does have instincts mm -hmm. and does have insight into um, in, into their own situations. Uh, you know, they, they just, sometimes reading the works of Lenin actually um, <laughs> distract from, uh, you know, your own uh, impulses and instincts and how you trust people and how you listen to people. Um, I think it did... Uh, it was a, a face plant that provided some direction for the next efforts. I would say you did see some repeating mistakes and I was, I'm not going to say everyone forgot um, everything they learned or came to the conclusion to after Bernie, but there was a kind of rudderlessness, um, particularly not just 
not after Trump, actually. I was I was very surprised people people came to it very proactively. Um, I mean, there's a lot of liberal hysteria. Uh, but you know, people were like, okay, well, this just means we need to double down on Bernie. After that, though, you kind of saw uh, a political direction recession. Um, it was kind of sometimes like Bernie never happened. And you saw a lot of the very like childish and vicious and opportunistic liberal politics with the, you know, ID poll, the kind of, you know, NGO brain stuff. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, Occupy I'm conflicted about, but all in all, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that you, your honesty, like about, you know, just the conflicted feeling of being the critic, you know, and and that that critique. Um, kind of being a cover for like this deeper sense of like, okay, but what do we do? I think that really did mm -hmm. come through in the book. Um, and you yeah, say I didn't know that, what to do either. I had a vague, I had a vague impression of like, well, it should be labor. And then I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought this through at all, but I know that they're wrong. So. Yeah. You call it like, you know, being smug is like a warm, cozy little blankie. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's something that a lot of us who are criticizing those stuck in the culture war, you know, have to face that like, it's one thing to critique, but also what are we doing? Um, and so you mentioned in retrospect that you actually missed a lot of what was going on at Occupy, that there were positive things that you maybe overlooked at the time due to the cozy little blankie of, of smugness. So mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you saw about Occupy that perhaps were more positive? There were anti-eviction protests, which I, I went to a few of those. Um, and I do think that had some effect on um, maybe not uh, eviction le legislation per se, but, you know, um, uh, but to, uh, I guess, the the approach that landlords, uh, so I did put a little bit of the fear of God into them. Um, it all kind of got wiped out with Hurricane Sandy because um, it's much easier to do charity and mutual aid than it is to do organizing. And it's an urgent thing. So you get an immediate return of, um, you know, immediate emotional return. It's something you sh should do as well because it makes you feel good. And politics and organizing doesn't have an immediate return. Um, I think one of the things that I saw that uh, I found very impressive was a lot of people just doing really elaborate administrative work. Um, you know, the revolution's gonna be a lot of spreadsheets as I put it. Um, <laughs> granted, those lists and phone trees and uh, you know websites and stuff like that it, it generally diffused because of the nature of the diffusion of Occupy Wall Street. I mean, it was a essentially an amorphous blob that only sort of grew outward. Um, but it, 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 when you saw people who were essentially really fucking good secretaries, uh, I was like, those are some of the most useful people um at this park and mm. their skills are not being made use of <laughs> um which is you know the real the real tragedy but also i was a, a kind of a really scatterbrained administrator so mm. i i was like oh they can do something i am not good at and have i i, I can get better at better at it but it's not instinctual for me and 
they're learning so many things um, about, you know, not just holding meetings, but just fucking keeping track of people. Just doing things like making introductions, making sure everyone mm. knows each other, making sure people feel comfortable around each other. Um, and I say a, a, a third thing would just be not um, people with the with the social skills, some of them demons, um, but people with the kind of um, uh, ability to transform their charisma into a sense of purpose. Um, some of that was for good, some of that was for bad, but it is in fact a skill. Um, mm. And I saw a lot of really good people develop that as they as they moved along. I also really liked in the book, you're talking about how like at the time you were sort of like scoffing at people and being like, wow, like you're only making politics your identity because yeah. you want to belong to something. And then you're like, yeah, yeah. in retrospect, you're like, oh yeah, like people want to belong to something. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you're just looking for meaning. It's like, oh, wait. <laughs> like that's, that's not weird. And I think because I had like sort of a community, like I punk and all of these, mm. you know, I had like arts, arts friends and everything that I couldn't figure out why everyone was looking to this for some sort of, um, you know, connection to other people. It's like, oh, actually, if you don't have something like mm. that, you're really lonely and you're yeah. really disconnected. I found so many people who like, they didn't really have friends. And I mean, some of it's because some of them were socially dysfunctional, but not even most of them. Mm -hmm. I, they would talk about their college friends who lived in states away. And I was like, oh, you don't have like a network or, you know, uh, uh, a scene or whatever. So you're making this your scene, which is, mm -hmm. you know, can really go sour. Um, but I didn't get that that is important to people and it needed to be at least a facet of this. Granted, you know, the movement or whatever can't be a substitution and you should be a little skeptical of somebody who comes mm -hmm. in with like no friends um, and, you know, no network whatsoever. Uh, maybe not skeptical. Maybe be like, why is that? Maybe mm -hmm. a little inquisitive. But at the same time, you know, people need connection they need to feel like they belong to something and that they're doing something that's bigger than just them and like they have friends totally um so you have this metaphor about stone soup that i think is absolutely beautiful and mm -hmm. you use it um as part of your takedown of the rampant like mutual aid as politics uh thing mm -hmm. that goes on um, all over the left and on the internet today. So can you just talk to us about the stone soup story and also like your critiques of mutual aid as a framework? Right. So it's this folk story where these people sort of wander into a village, like poor travelers or beggars or whatever, you know, it varies like all folk, folk stories and they don't have any food. So they go around and ask people for food. They're like, no, 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 no. So they get a big pot with water and they put a bunch of stones in it and they start a fire underneath and people are like, what the fuck are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're making stone soup. It's the best thing in the world. And uh, people are like, really? And they're like, yeah, it's amazing. And they're like, but you know what would make it better? Carrots. And someone's like, I have carrots. And they're like, oh, this is great. You know what would make it better? Potatoes. And on and on and on until they eventually make a real soup. Um, and there are a couple problems with that. Um, that's how people that's essentially mutual aid one 
people we don't have enough carrots and potatoes <laughs> like we don't have the carrots and potatoes yeah uh, the bourgeoisie has the carrots and potatoes <laughs> us sharing all of our shit still means there's not enough for everybody because there are all these people who don't want to share and they have all the stuff two i think it's dishonest i don't think you can trick someone into being a part of something and expect it to be long-lived yeah, Even if con. it works. Yeah, I, I don't think you should con people. I think you should be really honest and and not just because uh, it's moral, but because it's the only long-term way to build something. You should, people should trust you. And that's also the way you, I don't know, do all the, the things where you train leaders and, you know, do a division of labor that makes sense for organizing and, you know, the whole horizontalist nature of, of mutual aid also can be just a real mess um, when it is done in that sort of, uh, you know, anarcho whatever way. I think church groups do mutual aid really well. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to take away from like that kind of, um, you know, organizing, but it's essentially like charity. Um, and I did also compare it to certain types of church groups where it's, you know, the, the starvation army, the old, the old labor mm -hmm. song where they're like, hey, we'll give you food if you listen to this sermon. Yeah. People resent being preached to too. And I think ultimately telling people the truth means not being scared of them saying no mm -hmm. um, and not being afraid of rejection and being like, I believe in this and I believe this is the way forward and I want to work with you and I hope you want to work with me. And they might say, no, fuck you, weirdo. Um, mm -hmm. But you just keep going. It's a lot better than being like trying to sneak, trying to sneak the revolution out of someone. I don't know. It's, it's, it's yeah. creepy. Totally. And you also point out that like you can't make insulin in your bathtub and like you don't no. have the tools to like build housing for people. And so like yeah. this mutual aid is really just people like perhaps, you know, sharing groceries or like doing small things. But the scraps that we're sharing amongst ourselves are like these tiny, tiny scraps afforded to us yeah. and the wealth is being hoarded at the top. And so it really creates this false idea that you're doing politics while actually like distracting people away from what would be real organizing that might allow us to get some leverage to make demands of the people at the top. Yeah. And like, I like how you, you point out that, um, you know, essentially what they're talking about is just sharing and sharing is like, you know, <laughs> yeah. unambiguously like a good thing. Um, but that yeah, doesn't sharing mean that is it's caring. Like, yeah. But it's not, it's not a replacement <laughs> for like yeah. redistribution by the federal government. Yeah. 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 And, and infrastructure and, uh, you know, like institutions, Mm -hmm. um, very formalized things that have procedures and accountability, not in the, mm. in, a, in an actual democratic sense, not, yeah. the, you know, we're going to put you in the town square and shoot you, uh, kind <laughs> of way. Um, uh, but yeah, Nemo needs dialysis. Um, and I think you see this with, uh, you see it now with Roe v. Wade being overturned and people are like, oh, we're just going to like teach you how to do home abortions and Misha Prost. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. maybe I'm crazy old, but uh, we used to call those back alley abortions. <laughs> and there, there is a, a threat in them. You should be able to, you could get an infection. You might not yeah. pass it all the way. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's you true. have access to a doctor 
Which, and yeah, um, it's as safe as, you know, whatever, getting your wisdom teeth out. But people die getting their wisdom teeth out, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it leads us perfectly to our next uh, thing we wanted to talk about, which is that you somewhat unexpectedly, I think, for a lot of readers, um, ruthlessly take down Planned Parenthood. Um, and so it's what's, favors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but what's wrong with Planned Parenthood, and and why do leftists need to be wary of like NGOification and people who build their careers by filling the gaps that socialism would eradicate? Right. Well, I mean, like in an ideal world, obviously Planned Parenthood would be rallying for the abolition of Planned Parenthood. It's an mm-hmm. obsolescence, which would yeah. mean not only uh, that there is socialized healthcare for everything, but that. You know, women's health care, like abortions and birth control, wouldn't be sequestered into specific, you know, uh, clinics. Ideally, you could just go to a normal doctor's office in a, a normal hospital mm-hmm. and people don't fucking know you're going in there for an abortion. You're not going to the abortion store. Yeah. You're just going there because it's health care um, and it's blended in with other health care. Um, there's a whole other you know discussion about the way Planned Parenthood and all these NGOs form and I've 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 been talking about lately how if Trump wins maybe the Democratic Party won't even be that pissed and they'll just completely convert into what they want to be which is an NGO rather than a party <laughs> that they're they weren't really wanting too much in the first place you're not even a member of the Democratic Party but they're drifting further and further and and so are some unions, tragically. Um, but at the same time, I realize I've started all these things at the same time. Um, at the <laughs> same time, um, they're providing a necessary service, which um, imbues some, which, you know, attracts some loyalty, um, which is very deceptive. Because, um, you know, it it makes people, it gives people the impression that, you know, Planned Parenthood is out for women when, in fact, they're out for Planned Parenthood. Um, Mm -hmm. The big moment for me is when they made their first presidential endorsement of all time, which was, and it was the primaries, which was for Hillary, who had a worse record on abortion than Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, it, nothing made more clear that this is essentially just a, a make work program for, for the PMC. They didn't mm-hmm. really care about women. They didn't care about abortion. They cared about, it was a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your situation. It, it really hurt me because I had, I had done, you know, that was the thing I cut my abortion activism was the thing I cut my teeth on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that part of the book really struck me. And uh, as someone who's made my fair share of appointments at Planned Parenthood when Mm -hmm. I was young, like, you know, I think it seems very straightforward, of course, to support Planned Parenthood. And then to find out that, you know, people are doing these like backhanded things under that name to just promote their own interests at the expense of promoting like socialized healthcare that would you know, potentially be able to give free abortions to women. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's very disturbing. Um, so you make they a distinction. They still call, by the way, they still call and ask for donations when I say the same <laughs> thing. I say, I will never, ever donate to Planned Parenthood ever again uh, because they endorsed Hillary Clinton and not Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And you know what? I wouldn't have been mad if they didn't endorse NBA. 
if they had just kept their mouth shut, I would be mm. like, fine, you gotta, whatever, say nothing, fine. Um, but I just like, and you can tell your boss that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, the I'm... most like bitchy, useless thing to say, but it makes me feel better. And sometimes that's all you have. Yeah. And they mean like, <laughs> they got to hear it. I mean, I didn't know about this. Right. And so like, mm -hmm. I think people don't know about this yeah. and I think people need to think about it because it's a bit, um, disturbing and, and not that like transparent, you know? No, so it, it makes mm -hmm. sense. Right. Like there's like literally this entire like stratum of people who, um, if there was socialism and, or even just like sort of basic social programs that were funded by the government, they would all lose their jobs you know, mm -hmm. or have to get different yeah. jobs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They'd have so, to grow up and get a real job. <laughs> yeah. So um, you make a distinction between community-based activism versus project-based activism, um, arguing that we should organize around specific goals rather than trying to make everybody involved in a project agree on everything. And this is something that Jay and I really resonate with um, on the podcast. So can you just talk about that? Like, why is it important to organize towards specific projects rather than on like a whole broad range of shared political ideas? Right. Um, so one is just practical. People don't have a lot of time and they don't want to read through your manifesto. Mm. Um, and they might not actually be, know much about one issue and they might balk at it or they just fucking like, I don't want to read a your yeah. 10 point program unless they better be like two sentences if mm -hmm. that's your 10 point program um but two you know people can get people know what medicare for all is mm. um they uh especially at this point um a lot of working people are are familiar with medicare or medicaid so um they're they're like okay that's a program that's a program I understand and I'm familiar with and I can't object to it. Um, I also think community-based stuff sort of presupposes, well, when it, it's prefigurative because it's like, eh, be the change you want to see in the world. And it's like, that's one of those things that sounds good. But if you think about it for 10 seconds, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we formed a little commune. Like, wait, see how long that lasts. Um, mm -hmm. But <laughs> in addition to it, like, not lasting it's inherently exclusive because some people yeah. already have their own community they have uh you know their church or their neighbors or whatever and they they don't necessarily it's weird to knock on people's doors and be like hey do you want to do you, you want to come to a meeting where we discuss uh you know people like i got kids you know i remember talking to to someone about this uh at a at a meeting she's like i got kids like i don't fucking die for this yeah. um so it's a question of time it's a question of like it's just less attractive and two you're we only have so many resources like people want to use their energy in a concentrated way they don't want to like this isn't fucking montessori school we don't have the time to, you know, work on a million things at once. It's going to take all of our concentrated energy at this point for not only our numbers, but, you know, like what resources we have to even get one thing done. And I'll tell you what, if we get one thing done, <laughs> one thing done, I'll say, you know what, let's do two at a time. But until then, <laughs> like... Let's try to do one thing first. 
one thing and then I can let like mm. one win and then I'll consider my position on expanding it. Yeah, totally. And one thing that is actually sort of plausible in, in like a reality attached to our own, you know, um, not one thing that'll never happen, I think is also an important sort of mm, specification. Yeah. To or make one thing there. that's very abstract, you know, you say yeah. abolish the police, it means like 10 things to 10 people. Yeah. You say open borders, it means 10 things to 10 people. Those are slogans. Those aren't yeah. programs. But if you're like um, a doctor for also, every person. Yeah. 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 And they're also that, specific. Uh, you know? Yeah. And they're also abolition rather than building something. Like, yeah. You know, like that's not as inspiring to people as like, well, what would, you know, like accountable law enforcement look like? Which would, once again, huge project. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the thing to start with. Maybe not the thing, especially like, you know, there is a lot of crime in America. It usually gets inflicted on poor people. Yeah. Um, their response is naturally to be like, I need cops. My kid walks to school, um, you know, or like abolish borders. You know, people are like, I don't know what that means, you know, especially even people who are like very pro-immigration. Um, you know, they're like, what is, is that? You know, it's it's very vague, um, but it's also just taking it apart, like taking something apart. Totally That's not inspiring. There's also yeah. There's like this. I don't know how to describe it, but this constantly like getting rid of things, but not putting things in like that people need. And like we interviewed Cedric Johnson recently, who just wrote a book called After Black Lives Matter. And he talks about mm -hmm. how like, you know, public works programs, like providing like jobs for communities that would actually like enrich communities that have a lot of crime and that are over policed would do so much more than just like removing the cops from those communities because people actually have yeah. needs that are leading to survival crimes that are leading to the over policing. Yeah. And so maybe put some stuff in and not just take some stuff out. Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah, also, right. I mean, yeah, like the, the, the model where you're constantly taking things away is fundamentally like, it's like neoliberalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just like, what yeah, if we yeah. had, what if we had nothing? <laughs> it's, it's Leo, it's neoliberalism bordering on libertarianism. The only thing yeah. that you can imagine is like the absence of something mm -hmm. like that doesn't, and you have no vision for what it would look like in that vacuum. And what we've seen, of course, without having a positive program for law enforcement, is that all they've done in a lot of these cities doing experiments with law enforcement and austerity with law enforcement is that rich people have hired yeah. private security. Well, yeah, of course they, of course. Which is terrifying. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, way more terrifying than, than even the police because ostensibly at least there's some, some yeah. say that people have politically in the police. Or the very least they could. That's imaginable. Yeah, yeah totally. Speaking of um, terrible neoliberals, um, so both Bernie and Corbyn were taken down via identitarianism in large part, mm -hmm. at least, right? Yeah. Um, and your response to that is basically that leftists like should like like what I'm going to call <laughs> real leftists, me and you. Um, yeah. Uh, should not bow <laughs> down to this kind of thing, right? They should say, yeah. like, fuck you, that's a lie, and you know it, I think is the quote mm -hmm. from your book. Um, can you rant to us about this? Um, like, how do, we, how do we fucking react to the identitarians that just want to yeah. destroy everything that might work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say, I'd, I'd clarify that I don't necessarily think that they were taken 
down by identity politics in the sense that everyone believed that, you know, mm. Bernie doesn't care about black people or Corbett is anti-Semitic or whatever. I think what they did was essentially um, lower people's um, or or rather, I think what they did was, um, you know, convince got get a lot of people on the back foot particularly the people who, you know, should have been, you know, fuck you, that's a lie. And I think uh, a lot of the sort of reserves were like, shit, well, if they can't fight back, then what's the point? Like, it, it made us seem weak to capitulate. Mm. Um, you yeah. know, it, it's a loss of morale rather than everyone suddenly believing something dumb, some dumb lie about yeah. like Bernie Sanders or, or Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think a lot of that is just people are morally and politically insecure. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is sort of a professionalized culture, too, yeah. very HRE, where they're like, oh, well, but I'm not racist. And here's why. Actually, Bernie Sanders is less racist. And it's like, just don't you know, get pulled into that. You're on mm -hmm. the back foot. And everyone, if you are very active in the campaign, people are, in a sense, watching you. Not yes. you specifically, but you as a voice. And if yeah. you look weak, they're going to be like, well, fuck, why bother? Totally. Yeah, I think that this is a really important point because I think that when people get attacked by these like identity-based takedowns, they're so worried about how that makes them look, but they're not mm -hmm. thinking about how what they're how they respond, how that makes them look mm -hmm. to the actual like broader population of working people who are watching what they're doing. Yeah. And when you're doing that, like you're playing this PMC like HR game um, mm -hmm. of being like, oh, I know the right words and the right politically correct behaviors. But by doing that, you also just don't look like a normal person. Like you look like a person yeah, who look, is playing <laughs> like a weird game that isn't related yeah, yeah. to regular working people's lives. And so it's alienating. And so yeah. people are like, you're not very serious. Like, and so like the, the broader working class is just like, this is not very serious. So yeah. I think that that's something that people really need to think about. And I haven't heard anybody else articulate it quite the way you did in, in your book. So thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you're right. Like how normal can you look if you're not willing to say, shut the fuck up? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? Like, yeah. I, I literally like stay awake at night, like dreaming of like a a, a a political candidate who would be able to just be like, shut the fuck up. That's meaningless. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And like, yeah. here's what we're even, actually yeah. suggesting that we're going yeah. to do. Like, here's our policy proposals. Here's how what we're going to do is actually like going to help like working yeah. class people who obviously a, have all sorts of identities. A truly committed and, you know, not to be not to be dramatic, but like militant left would learn how to roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you know, totally. And I think on top of, you know, just to, to, to build a little bit on that, um, I think part of why they're insecure about like, you know, the right or disingenuous liberals accusing them of something is a lot of that moral and political insecurity is because they're scared of each other. Mm. Um, if you're scared, <laughs> of, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're scared of being attacked by your quote unquote comrade, right. then how are you going to have the balls to stand up to the right? Now, I, I don't think that, um, I, I'm not sure. I think people are more scared of, at least on a social level, of, uh, you know, the kind of internal dynamics of these movements a lot of time, not all the time. 
and I'm talking about activist things, not necessarily political, broader things, of uh, you know the person next to them rather than the person in front of them or above them. How can you possibly expect people to be brave and say, fuck off, if they're like, well, he's not racist. Oh, God, I hope this person next to me doesn't think I'm racist. Mm-hmm. I hope I hope the person I'm not in, you know, food not bombs with, you know, thinks that I'm racist. <laughs> if you're doing that, then you're you you don't have a chance to tell a liberal that you're full of shit. Totally. Um, so a lot of this stuff um we see play out heavily on social media. And you talk about in in your book how you were in in on Twitter like in the good old days before it got crazy when people were just <laughs> being funny and weird. Um, And then, you know, you've taken a step back from social media. Um, You've also written elsewhere about like hashtag activism and the way that social Mm -hmm. media sort of like absorbs social causes um, and then doesn't achieve anything. So can you talk to us Mm -hmm. just a little bit about social media's role in all of this? Yeah, it was interesting because I'm I'm very famously – not good at I'm pretty good at political trends and recognizing those I am not that good at social trends Mm. um so when Twitter came up I was like 140 characters that's fucking stupid um (laughs) (laughs) and I think I sort of underestimated like a lot of people having like very tedious office jobs um Mm. or like me were under and unemployed and there's just nothing to do and the speed at which you had to do things. So if you were overemployed, maybe you only had time for 140 characters. And it was this weird kind of experiment in brevity, which was fun and attracted like funny people. Now, it wasn't like, oh, we were all a big family. It was really nasty too, but in a really different way. Um, I, me and Felix compared it to um, like rugby versus football. Mm-hmm. Like you hit each other full contact in rugby, but there are way fewer injuries in football. You are padded head to toe. But when you get sacked enough times, you know, the part of your brain that keeps you from killing your wife gets hit. Like it's it's really changed into sort of, you know, whatever uh, uh, LinkedIn for blue check media. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people are nasty as shit. So, and I do think there's still some, you know, some weird Twitter vets out there, you know, keeping it mean for all us sinners. Um, but, you know, it's it's turned into a very sort of ruthless space, um, as much as I hate that word. And, you know, it breaks your brain. Um, I remember I stayed on Instagram the longest because I was like, well... I remember when people are like, oh, why would you take a picture of your food or your dog? I'm like, God, I long for the days when people would just take a picture (laughs) of their food or their dog. That's actually like that's actually like reaching out to people. That's actually Mm. on some level social. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was the black box. I don't know if you remember this um, call where I was like, they're like, tomorrow everyone's going to post a black box for Black Lives oh, yes. Matter. And I'm like, I do remember that. I'm leaving. <laughs> I I have a, my, I, as much as I don't know what's going to get big, I do have a magical sixth sense for knowing when a party's about to suck. Um, and I was like, this is, this party's going south that I left. And I just heard from friends. It was like, 
you know, people being like, white people shouldn't post it. And then they're like, Asians are complicit. And then they're like, (laughs) fucking, you know, that's when the the BIPOC acronym came up. And it's like, you're just trying to say not Asians. Uh, like, uh, then it was like, white people better post it. And it was like, you know, white silence is complicity. And then it was like, sit down and shut up and listen. And it's like, well, those are mutually exclusive instructions. <laughs> and, like, yeah. and like, people got really scared and, you know, there were pylons and stuff. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Um, so I was like, damn it. Even Instagram. Um, oh, yeah. And I think after Trump hysteria or whatever, or maybe it's just my algorithms, it has cooled a little bit. And maybe I've just like gotten rid of enough people who are nasty and freak out about it. But ultimately, it's a scary place in a way that sort of a lot of early social media, or at least early Twitter, wasn't, um, in fact, in the sense that you could get in trouble. It was just early Twitter, someone would be mean to you. Mm-hmm. like mean to you but you wouldn't yeah. get in trouble yeah they wouldn't like come for your job and all your friends like yeah it was yeah. shitty but it wasn't punitive that's yeah. what i always said i'm a bully but i'm not punitive yeah totally sometimes i like come across an account on instagram where it's still just people taking pictures of their dog and like the things that they ate that day and i'm like it's so wholesome and pure and i love <laughs> oh, you, yeah. you know? yeah it's magical um, i have a friend yeah. who's still on twitter and he's like i just look at basketball twitter i don't see any of this shit <laughs> and i'm like good job man and i think that's changed with x too they force you to look at shit you don't care about right. mm. um i don't totally understand how it changed but i know that everyone got really upset at, like especially people with healthy attitudes towards it that are just like follow it for funny people or celebrity gossip or basketball and they're like why am i seeing this this it's like fucking yeah. journalist why am i seeing taylor lawrence <laughs> yeah totally all right so listen we have a lot of listeners who are kind of like i don't know disaffected leftists or something you know like people who found themselves kind of in like the culty end of the left and are now sort of in the process of exiting or being more critical of that and we were wondering like if you have advice to people like that who actually want to organize you know and sincerely like kind of like want to help and want to be useful um but feel like there's nothing they can do because everything sucks so much um <laughs> what's your uh, what's what, I mean- what, what would you say to them it's a very, it's very vague advice, but my um, sort of position has been really since Occupy is that we shouldn't be looking inward. I think mm. one of the things that was a very good instinct and and potentially planted a seed to change the tides of sort of activism, for lack of a better word, or movement building, for lack of a better phrase, was that he targeted non-voters. Um, I don't think, and I said, I said this during the, um, during the election when we got, we did like a question show and people were like, what should I do if, uh, my parents want to vote for a liberal and I want to talk to them? And, uh, one of the, my co-hosts said, well, you know, if it's Biden, no, uh, but if it's Warren, maybe. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's the Warren ones you got to watch out for. Like, those people are suicide bombers. Um, not not all of them. Uh, but if you're, if you're really, I said, there's going to be a lot of passive Biden voters, people who are just like, oh, I remember him. 
Mm -hmm. know, it's a name they recognize and name recognition is, is a big thing. People sort of can at least get a vibe when they don't have the fucking time to follow the granularity of politics. Um, but if you're really into Liz Warren, like really into it, you are, you've already have a relationship with politics mm. um, that is not that great. So again, whatever, look to the normies, you know, don't mm. look inward. Um, you're going to find, and that's the way you're going to find other, you know, uh, other lefties that are actually normal and well-adjusted. Mm. It's it's really easy to be disaffected and maybe a little heartbroken and sore about the way the left treated you because it could get really fucking nasty and delusional. Mm -hmm. And it's even more dispiriting to be like, you want to do what? What are you talking about? But most people aren't like that. Yeah. So find those people and i think a lot of people sort of um you know if they if they don't have a a kind of uh malicious or putative personality you know if they don't have like a tyrannical streak that's that's uh actually like sort of a a facet of their of their self you know they'll figure it out uh, a lot of like liberals and um people who i think were sort of wishy-washy actually did rally around Bernie and they're like oh mm. I actually uh people in the middle of the country aren't monsters mm. they just need something to believe in it's not our job to scold them it's our job to woo them um it's our job to tell them honestly what we believe will make all of our lives better totally so um just as we're finishing up do you want to tell our listeners about um any other projects you might be working on right now, what you're excited about going forward, and also where people can find out more about your work. Sure. Um, I have never had a website my entire career, and I, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do one now. Um, for now, I post my stuff on stories. I have um, an article in Jacobin uh, about adulting coming out, and it's like uh, – or no, it's already out. Uh, you know, why – millennials mm. uh, don't grow up the original the original deck is why they won't grow up but i'm like well that's that's not really fair that makes it sound like a decision that they made outside of sort of material conditions but my argument is that's you know understandable given those material positions um i have um uh an essay coming out um that's more literary about you know what i'll i'll send it to you to um uh promote alongside me because i'm not sure if it's going in print or online yet mm, okay um, and i have a piece it's about it's about adderall house style it's about how adderall is sort of we are very much an amphetamines generation um, <laughs> uh and and then come down with benzos um but that'll be in uh yeah uh and then i have um something coming out in damage uh about um well using the apple store as a model um and what a, what a hell a hellscape that is specifically because not only has have has everything been deinstitutionalized you know politically in america uh but but it's uh 
even the consumer experience. Uh, Fisher uh, noted that like the employment experiment experience has become sort of uh, diffuse and opaque. But it's like now, even mm. if you just it's it's spread to the customer, nobody knows what they're doing. No one knows where they're <laughs> supposed to be. And everyone's scared that if they do it wrong, they're going to jail. Um, <laughs> Kafka-esque, which is, a, which is an overused term, but it really is. Um, and that's a damage. But yeah, I'll keep posting stuff. Maybe one day I'll, posting the stuff I publish, maybe one day I'll actually put together a website. Probably not. But I'd like to release a book just of all my published stuff, just so I don't mm. have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I mm -hmm. hope everyone, uh, you know, everyone buys the book or a lot of people do. It did well at pre-sales um, mm -hmm. and I'm getting a lot of good feedback. So that's very reassuring. Um, and uh, yeah, it's always Chapo Trap House, which I'm, you know, mm -hmm. sort of now that I've finished a bunch of shit and I've done some promoting, I, I can go back to co-hosting some while I work on additional projects. Nice. Amazing. Well, we do want to uh, let our listeners know that your book is really good and really funny, mm -hmm. like deeply funny um, and like cutting, but then like warm yeah. uh, and like, <laughs> Has I a lot know. of heart. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's like a very honest and like real look at where a lot of millennial like organizer activist types find themselves. And so I think it will be really relevant for our audience. Yeah. I think they're, they're all going to appreciate it. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciated your, your time. Yeah, thanks for coming Great. on. Thanks for having me. This was lovely.